from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada. Welcome to Psych Health and Safety in Canada. I'm your host, Marianne Baton, and today I'm really thrilled to introduce you to Paul Smiths. Paul is a health promotion specialist with the Somerville Family Health Team, but he has a lot of wisdom, um, a lot of experience that he's going to share with us today. So welcome, Paul. Thanks so much for having me, Marianne. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Now that that's good to hear that it's not. <laughs> ah. um, so I wonder, Paul, if we can start with really figuring out how you came to learn about psychological health and safety. Well, there's been several opportunities in my life, Marianne, where I've been, you know, given the opportunity to explore the topic from various perspectives. Uh, one that really stands out to me is several years ago, I did experience a substance use disorder. And it really, I mean, it was a challenging time for myself, my family, my colleagues. It really opened my eyes to, I mean, having worked in workplace wellness for so, so many years, trying to support individuals, you know, trying to prevent and, and manage, you know, these challenges it really allowed me to learn a lot about the process in terms of disability management and some of the inherent challenges in the workplace in terms of managing someone uh, going through such a thing. So that, that really stands out in terms of my, you know, my lived experience in terms of psychological work, you know, uh, health in the workplace. Yeah. And when, when we can bring our personal experience, be, you know, I, talk a lot about my experience with burnout and dealing with stress, dealing with anxiety. And when we can bring that to the work that we do, I think it does shed a different light on things as opposed to talking about something that we've uh, never had the experience of. So when you first um, started to uh, get better, what were some of the tips, the strategies that really sustained you? And especially, Paul, the ones that you hadn't thought about in your work beforehand. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are several, you know, I think for so many years, I was given the opportunity to, to support others in their own, you know, health and well-being journeys. And so somewhat ironically, when I experienced the illness, it really brought to light some of the neglect that I've been, you know, in terms of my own overall health and well-being. And so what worked for me, uh, I mean, it was, it was support. It was a lot of support from a lot of different individuals and uh, organizations, uh, you know, my family, my colleagues, my coworkers, and professional support as well that really went a long way into uh, improving my overall health. But just the idea of, you know, the importance of taking time for self and prioritizing my own mental health and well-being and not just, you know, doing so for others was really, I mean, it sounds like such a simple, you know, concept or it could be, but it was not for me. And it was a lot of unpacking, a lot of layers to that that I learned along the way. Yeah. And I mean, your story is not uncommon that helpers don't know how to accept help. So you say that one of the things that really helped for you 
was the support that you had. Now, is was that true to nature for you prior that you would accept support and help from others? Definitely not. Not easy. I mean, there I was speaking to others about the significance of asking for help and putting one's pride and ego aside and saying, it, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And, and there I was. It, it was difficult. It was very difficult to first admit that I was struggling and to acknowledge that I was, you know, going through what I was going through, but then to, to put my hand up and to, to admit that I needed help. No, it was not easy by, by any means. So what do you think the process was for you that you finally came to the decision that you would reach out, that you would accept help? The idea of not being alone, the idea of, you know, knowing that others were experiencing similar challenges, I knew that, but I don't think I really believed that, like the idea of common humanity and self-compassion. I, I really latched on to that. And, you know, being introduced to, through a variety of pathways, individuals who were vulnerable and caring and compassion. And uh, I quickly became aware of just how many other folks um, struggled or, or knew somebody close to them that were uh, experiencing similar challenges. And so this idea that I was no longer alone and that, that others were experiencing uh, similar difficulties really allowed me to, you know, let my guard down and be open and willing to seek and receive that, that care, that love, that help. Yeah, that's the, really the work that we've been doing for the last two decades is trying to get leaders, um, sometimes celebrities, but people that will speak to the issue so we don't see it as those people anymore we understand this is us this is our people this is us that has all of these things it's part of the human condition and uh my heart breaks for those who um really were in a, a situation where they felt truly alone and truly ostracized because so many people have similar issues, but if we don't talk about it, if we don't share what it is, then everybody thinks it's just them, that they're the only one. And, uh, and, and like you say, here you are helping other people, but feeling that you are a failure. And, and Paul, this is one of the things that I've um, said to myself, don't be a hypocrite. If you tell people to reach out, if you tell people that they should care about themselves, then you got to do it. And you eventually did. Yeah. And, you know, through my, my work, it really, it really provided an opportunity for me to reconsider, right. Some of the supports and some of the teachings of facilitation that I was going about in my day to day, right? Because again, there I was, right? Saying how important it was and, and it was so, so difficult uh, for myself to do so. And, and you use the word leaders and the, the importance of just vulnerability and openness from, I mean, anyone across the society, but in terms of the workplace, I, it was such great opportunity, I think for leaders management at various levels to, you know, appropriately share their stories and to be vulnerable so that their teams, right, their, their colleagues 
are, are more willing and more equipped, I'll say, to, to engage in those conversations and reach out for support themselves. Yeah, when I started um, talking about management and leadership, I was telling people what they should do. And when I started changing to telling people about all the ways I've messed up, all the ways that I've had to recover, to ask forgiveness, to start over again, that's when they really started to resonate. Because if you act like, well, here I am, the great savior coming to help you poor people who are struggling, it doesn't resonate in the same way as saying, hey, I'm one of you. The, the whole peer support movement is based on that. Tell me, Paul, how people responded to you in the workplace, the good and the bad, mm. when they understood what you were dealing with. Yeah, and there was, there was good, there was bad and, and everything else in between. Um, I think a lot of it, you know, and, and as I say that, I mean, it, nothing was bad. I got a lot of, there was a lot of hesitation when I, you know, was more open and honest with my experience. And, and the fact was, it was impacting my work. And so I required, you know, certain accommodations during the day. So my colleagues quickly became aware of the situation, perhaps more quickly than I would have intended. And so I, I don't blame anybody. I just think that there's so much uncertainty around mental illness. There's so much that we don't know. And with anything we don't know, you know, brings in and invokes fear. And so as my story became um, more known across the organization, yeah, there was just a bit of hesitancy, a bit of, right, uh, chat. I could tell, you know, people didn't necessarily know how to engage in those conversations and meetings in, in, in you know, in the day-to-day -day interactions as much as they would have uh, previously. So, you know, there were some folks that were quick to be open and honest. And again, as I said before, share their stories. That made the world of difference. It yeah. really, really did for me. So there was, you know, the, the bad, so to speak. And, and there was a lot of really, really good. And, and I'm so thankful for both because I really learned from all of the above in that. Yeah. So to, to normalize and validate what you're going through was positive. And the people who, yeah, were awkward and didn't quite know what to say wasn't so much. Now, have you changed how you react to other people? I think so, somewhat. I, I think that the more informed I become, the more I try to relate as opposed to look for the differences. I think that's, I know it's my nature to look for the differences between myself and yourself. So the more I can look for similarities and, and, and you know, think about that human experience as you, you described it. Yeah, it becomes easier to just, one thing I learned, Marianne, you think, you know, you, you talked about what was helpful. And I think so often we think we need to have all of the answers before we can engage in a conversation or we can be helpful to somebody. And the opposite couldn't have been more true for me. The idea that folks were just willing to be there and to listen, that's all I needed, especially in those moments when I was really struggling. Those experiencers were the most helpful to me. So we don't necessarily need to know what to say. There is nothing we can really say, right? We're not going to fix the individual. Rather, what I'm really trying to bring forward in my life now is just to be present right, to be understanding, compassionate, bring some love to that interaction, and 
The rest, I mean, it'll unfold as it does, but we don't need to know everything to be supportive and helpful to those individuals. That's beautiful. From, from both perspectives, Paul, from the person who feels a responsibility to fix you um, and, uh, or the person that wants to rescue you, and that's a hard lesson for people who really love somebody who's struggling and they say, if I could say the right thing, if I could do the right thing, if I could stop them, then it would all be right. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not the way it works. But, but that, that idea of just being open to how can I be here? How can I let you know? It's that simple little thing. Yeah, It's, it's not always easy, is it? It's not because we're uncomfortable, exactly what you said. We're uncomfortable when we're not sure what to do. We become fearful and then we don't know how to react. Um, now, when we were talking uh, earlier, you had uh, given to me some great little tips um, about things that can support people at work when they're maybe not at their best, when they're maybe struggling. Do you wanna share some of those? Yeah, I, you know, as I just alluded to, I think as as management, as leaders, as as you know, folks in our workplace who oversee and and help those around us, I think the first and foremost is just being there and and again doing our our best to learn to educate ourselves right around. Well, I mean the the challenges associated with mental illness and mental health um, uh, challenges and. So, you know, around some of the language we use, for example, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier, using person-centered language, even if the person isn't part of a conversation, right? Just being um, compassionate and understanding that there is a distinction between one's condition, one's illness, and the individual themselves. So that, as an example, can go such a long way in really shifting the culture, I'll say, of a of an organization, of a team, right? So that folks know that they are truly authentically supported by those that they report to. So that's one example that comes to mind. Uh, another one really is just, again, just normalizing the, the dialogue in the workplace appropriately, right? Whether that's looking to other organizations to host webinars. I mean, there are so many great um, associations and organizations that are doing some wonderful work in this area. So leaning on their services to be able to um, equip your staff, right? Equip your colleagues with those tools, with the resources to be able to support others, but probably most importantly, to support themselves. Yeah. I want to go back, Paul, to what you were talking about, person-centered conversations and the way that we talk about people, because some don't understand it. They don't recognize it. The difference between saying um, he's an alcoholic or he's somebody who struggles with alcohol use. And the difference is he becomes a thing, a problem versus a person, a human being, somebody who has value in and of themselves with a problem. Can you give a few more examples like that? So people really understand how they could speak in a way unintentionally that could be harmful and give them a different idea of how to do it. Yeah, well, I'll use my own experience as an example, right? The word addict, right? That invokes a reaction for a lot of people, doesn't it? 
right? And again, like you just so eloquently said, it attaches the preconceived notion of what an addict is to the individual and there's no separation. So, you know, using the word addict, and again, I can't say this enough, just because you're not engaging in conversation with me as someone who experienced substance use disorder, doesn't minimize the importance of being aware and conscious of this, this type of language, because it's, the data suggests that anyone who you're speaking to either may be suffering themselves, but more than likely has someone quite close to them that is experiencing a, uh, a mental illness or, or a similar disorder. So, you know, the word addict, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with other specific examples, Marianne, around person-centered. Something that really stood out for me that you touched on earlier was this idea of I, right? I, not necessarily answering your question, but the importance of using I and not making it about Paul, the person experiencing substance use disorder, or, and that really, again, allows a, a, a warmth or a, a compassionate um, approach to, to any conversation. So I statements, person-centered language can go such, such a long way in, in equipping people to, to know they can come forward and seek the support they deserve. Yeah, I mean, in, in my field, um, we've talked about things like not saying, well, he's a depressive or she is uh, OCD or um, you're acting bipolar today or, um, you know, they're schizophrenic. And right. all of these things are labeling people in a way, whereas somebody may be dealing with depression, that doesn't make them uh, a depressive uh, in and of themselves, but language matters a lot and uh, can make a big difference. And like you say, you don't know who's listening all the time. You don't know what they're going through and you don't know what their family's going through. So all of that is valuable. There's a, a concept that you um, brought up, Paul, that I very much um, also support, and it's micro breaks. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how you use them throughout the day? Yeah, uh, so have been so important in my own my own journey, and, and you know I think there's this all or nothing mentality. I think there's a preconceived notion that in terms of practices and exercises we can look to to improve our overall health and well-being it's got to be this big grand gesture whether that's you know running for 30 minutes on the treadmill sweating our tail off or sitting cross-legged with our fingers connected meditating for 15 to 20 minutes and, and so on you know the literature strongly supports and it's it's again it's been my experience that just like the, it's an expression I love, the gift of pause, right? Just finding moments in one's day to just take that deep breath or two and to just, I mean, how quick does our day go by, you know? And before we know it, we're, you know, in the routine of the evening and we haven't necessarily taken any time for ourselves, right? Because we've been so committed to others, to our work, et cetera. So finding and protecting, protecting space within our day, if only for a few seconds, a few breaths, an opportunity to look out the window and enjoy the beautiful snow falling down as I see it, a quick stretch. And as an individual, it's so critically important to our overall mental health and well-being. There's no, no denying that. As an organization, as a leader, is there a way to invite and, and, and sincerely support your team in finding these, this time and the space for micro breaks, whether that's 
starting off a meeting perhaps with a check-in or, or a couple of deep breaths or whatever that looks like, whatever fits within your team, your organization, is there a way to really empower your, your staff to be able to engage in these micro breaks? You know, what you just described seems so simple, so <laughs> minimal, and yet it could change lives for the better. So it's, it's an important point. And uh, I love the way that you've described it, that people can really pick this up and not have to study, not have to buy equipment and start to change their life for the better just with that. Um, you also talked about the importance of fostering connection. Today, <laughs> when most of us are talking through... Uh, the, these kinds of platforms, how do we foster connection? It's a challenge, isn't it? Um, there are so many barriers that um, have been you know, presented to us given the circumstances globally. And yet I, I, it's so critically important in terms of overall mental health and well-being, but you know, for the, the engagement of employees and for the success of the organization. And so Again, it's about meeting the team where it's at, right? Uh, I, I quickly, through the pandemic, realized that, you know, I really, really valued those hallway conversations, those, you know, uh, informal interactions with, with colleagues. So is there a way, as I'm speaking, I, I think it's about listening to your, your team, right? Like really checking in with your team to see what they're missing. Right, because what works and in, in what's important to me in terms of fostering connection may not necessarily work for a, a different organization or, or individual. So, you know, can you have that conversation with staff to see how you might be able to foster that in an effective and you know strategic way? Mm -hmm. Now, your work as a health promotion specialist um, in the psychological health and safety standard there is some language around health promotion as well as um, mitigating risk. So we say that mitigating risk is sort of the basic requirement for you know, avoiding liability, but health promotion is more of a gold standard, something to aspire to. Can you tell us a little bit about how you would encourage um, health promotion in all different types of organizations right now. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, the more that we can do that's upstream, it is preventative in nature, of course, the better off we're going to be. So when I think about, you know, uh, tangible, practical things that an organization can embark on, again, I go back to the same concept I just outlined, which is meeting teams where they're at. And so I think to get a, a, a true sense of what is going to be effective for anyone's team, mm -hmm. I think that starts with reaching out to your employees, right? I mean, whether that's through surveys, I, I, you know, we all get inundated with surveys. So there may be other ways, you know, in conversations, at meetings, et cetera, to get a sense of what it is that your team needs to uh, be able to engage in behaviors or activities that are, um, you know, focused on health promotion. And <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, it's just, again, that concept is that there are no cookie cutter approaches, right? <laughs> you can't just choose the flavor of the month 
um, workshop or a a campaign or promotion and think, well, this is going to do it. And just taking the time, as you say, to ask your team, what do you need? What do you need to bring your best selves to work and to want to be here and to have energy left over when you go home? Your your concepts all sound so uh, common sense, but they're not that common. (laughs) Yeah, no, they're not. And, you know, I think so often we as organizations and businesses focus on the transactional side of, of the business and operations, don't we? And so I think in and of itself, reaching out, right, and asking our staff, what is it that you need? I think it's a way to become aware of some of the processes that are in place that may be adding a burden or may be in, fo- in fact, you know, adding stress to one's day, right? So when I think about health promotion, it's not necessarily always about adding, right, the positives, the, the mindfulness, the meditation, the physical activity, et cetera, et cetera as equally important is looking at, right, our policies and our processes and in trying to decide, and again, that's gotta come from the employees themselves, doesn't it? But trying to become more aware of, is there something that we can shift in the way we go about our day to day that is going to in fact minimize the psychological stress on our employee population? Right, and that's the difference between Um, mental health awareness or mental health support and psychological health and safety is the organization looking at what's within their influence, what's within their responsibility, what's within their control, and certainly helping employees to, um, you know, get the resources they need, but really focusing on what, what can we do as an organization. Now, in all of your years in the work that you've done, do you have any particular um, situations of success that you can share where you've helped somebody to uh, start again, to be able to see where they're at and turn their lives around? Yeah, a few come to mind, Marianne. You know, I think about a lot of my professional experience is supporting uh, healthcare organizations from a, a wellness perspective. And I mean, I think we're all aware of how challenging that field can be at the best of times, but of course, especially given the current circumstances. And, you know, acknowledging that those challenges are inherent and that there are certain things that what we keep coming back to this, as you say, like what would work for another organization, whereas these individuals are struggling to find time to eat may not necessarily be as effective. So something that comes to mind is, is the idea of collaborating with uh, management, right? Each unit and each department have managers that are pretty well aware of the, the challenges and opportunities within their teams and deciding collectively where we could go in and offer those micro breaks. It's a, it's a program that I think about, we, we called it Refresh. And it was literally going on to the units. So myself and others within the team and giving an opportunity at a time that best suited that specific unit or department, a facilitated break, whether it was mindfulness, deep breathing, a physical stretch, these types of things. And it was really about meeting the team where they were And so often the gratitude and the response that was received from our frontline employees was was immense. 
And so I don't have a specific example with a specific individual in mind, but as an approach, again, it's about recognizing where our staff are and doing everything we can within our power to be able to support them with that. Yeah, and you think about healthcare workers like you are, you had already alluded to, they may be hungry, they may be sleep deprived, they may be having family issues because they're so involved with their work right now that their relationships are struggling as well. And their central nervous system is just, you know, on overdrive. And for you to come in and say, let's just take a minute, can actually just reduce all of that stress and help them understand they can do that throughout the day. So that's a, that's a great example. Um, Paul, are there, are there others of interventions like that that you've done? Yeah, again, just about shifting the, the way that, you know, that support is offered. So I think about, you know, conventionally, I know many, many workplaces that offer, you know, fitness classes, right, or, or lunch and learns. And if that doesn't suit your team's schedule, as it definitely did not in many instances in healthcare, is there an opportunity to shift, right? Shift the way you provide a similar opportunity. And so I think about, you know, we historically had offered group exercise classes. We found through collecting data, right? And with that, with those statistics, right? You're able to tell a pretty clear story about what's working what's and what's not. We found that many of our clinical staff were not accessing and taking advantage. Of course, they weren't, they weren't able to escape. I shouldn't use the word escape. They weren't able to leave their department or unit for that significant amount of time. So we completely shifted our model. We made it a membership-based model where we had the space, we had the equipment, there were some liability challenges that we had to address, but that was fairly straightforward. And we opened up the space so that staff, if they had that 15 minute break, if they had the desire after or before a shift to go in and use the equipment to, right, to improve uh, their energy, as you say, um, and their overall well-being, it was a great success. And what we found was the percentage of our membership with that model it was in fact clinical. Those that didn't necessarily have the time, space, or support to be able to engage in the uh, the previous you know, models of offerings. So you adapted, you, you spoke to or found information from the employees and you adapted what you thought they wanted to what would actually work. And that um, plan, do, check, act, that sort of continual improvement is really what employers need to look at in that way. That's uh, fascinating. Um, now, here's a question that we get asked a lot um, around the workplace is that if we see somebody, we believe that, that they're struggling with their mental health, with substance abuse, um, how do we approach, if we do care, if we do want to show that, what would be the words? This is what people ask me, what are the words? What do I say? Yeah, it's, again, it can be daunting, it, you know, not knowing and, not having all the answers, so to speak, right, makes that hesitation, that, that reluctancy real. I, I think it can be simple, Marianne, is, hey, how are you? And, and, and I mean that in the words are critically important, but the tone and the presence 
the body language, right? Even though we're here, you know, connecting via Zoom is 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 to be um, acknowledged. I think about our society, and I mean, how quickly we are to just hey, how are you doing, and just literally walk, you know, walk by somebody, whether that's at the workplace or in our day to day. But hey, how are you doing can actually be a incredibly powerful question if asked in a certain way. Again, with that presence and with that openness. So, just asking that question with no judgment, no intention, no preconceived idea of, of what it is, you, and just listening, as difficult as that can be at times, I think can go such a long way in, you know, informing or allowing that individual to know that, hey, this person cares. And they're not going to put you in, you know, by asking that question, they're not necessarily going to put you in an incredibly awkward. So there's not much you know, there's not much um, harm or potential, you know, risk in, in asking the question. It simply allows your colleagues, your team to know that you're there, you care, and will likely foster, you know, enhanced and, and better connection down the road. So, so two things out of that, Paul. One is that some people are actually afraid of the answer mm-hmm. because they then believe that if they tell me what's wrong, now I'm responsible. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you help somebody get over that fear and uh, refocus on what you keep saying, which is just have space, just what do you need? It's a simple thing, but what's your advice? Yeah, so if there is that, that fear, and of course, right, naturally there's going to be a, a, to varying degrees for, for different individuals. I think just being aware of the supports, the resources that, you know, if it does come to that place, right? While the organization has an EAP program, the organization has the programs or the resources to be able to better support you. And and again, I, I think about the many interactions that I've had as the individual opening up and sharing, but also from the other side. And and rarely is that, you know, is the intention behind that dialogue to just get answers and to be able to fix anything. So I just think if we, if we really intentionally educate and continue to communicate to our teams and to our management that these resources, these policies, right, occupational health and safety, et cetera, are, are available and, and, and meant, right, to be, to be leveraged then that, at least in my experience, and the literature suggests that kind of just minimizes that fear just ever so slightly. Right, because it's not going to be your responsibility to treat, counsel, provide therapy. It's just to let them know that you're there. The other thing that comes up, Paul, especially with substance use, is um, people saying, well, they lied to me. I'm not, I'm not going to talk to them anymore because they lied to me. Can you talk a little bit about why that is and how we should actually view somebody with uh, a substance use issue lying? Yeah, that's, that's a question that I, um, I continue to reflect on years out. You know, why was it that I went about certain uh, behaviors or actions the way that I did? And, you know, uh, myself as an individual, there was never any malice or, you know, uh, ill intention in, in being dishonest or deceitful. Uh, you know, for me and, I, and many others that I'm aware of, 
it was part and parcel with the condition. And for so many of the reasons we've discussed, you know, there, there was significant shame uh, for me as an individual, reluctancy, hesitancy to share any of my story. And so what was the opposite of that? It was holding within, it wasn't always being honest. And I never meant to cause anyone any harm, but of course not. It was simply, I was not in a position, I felt that I wasn't in a position to be open, to ask for help as we mentioned, right? So I think it was a product of my own fears, my own, the shame, again, because of so much of what we hear about substance use, the shame and the guilt and a lot of that, right? Just, just hung over my head which led me to not necessarily be as honest as I could have been. And so what were some of the reactions that you feared you might have gotten had you been honest? Yeah, I mean, so many that I I can't necessarily recount them all, Uh, you know, it depended on the day. Um, But there, you know, there was, I, I felt that I could have been abandoned. I mean, well, first and foremost, judgment, right? You know, I, I, I prided myself on, on my, um, my, well, my profession, but my reputation. And so I felt that if sharing my story, and if, if I was to be honest, that I would not necessarily be held to the same regard. Um, I mentioned shame. I mentioned that, you know, I, I feared that people wouldn't necessarily have the same level of trust in me. And I've had to work to rebuild that as well. So there was a a numerous things that I was fearful of if I had, you know, been transparent from the beginning. Yeah. So can we agree that the lying about substance use isn't trying to manipulate or disrespect other people? that it is a survival strategy, it is a defense mechanism, and that judging people for not being completely honest is really just looking at you and not that human being and what they might be going through. Couldn't agree more, in fact. You know, again, it's that that person-centered perspective and, you know, realizing that there are many, yeah, many reasons um, connected to one's illness, connected to one's circumstances. And if we are to hold our outlook of an individual as a human being, that we have to be willing to hold everything that you just described, right? Knowing that there will be circumstances or situations that we may not feel is right, or we may not know a lot about, but just being willing to see that individual as a human being and to be there for them with as little judgment as possible. That's all there really is. And, uh, and again, folks, you know, that isn't always easy, but the better we can learn, the more information we can, you know, bring uh, around this topic, then hopefully those moments, hopefully those conversations, those experiences become slightly less, right, uh, awkward or, mm-hmm. or difficult in time. 
And Paul, what do you think about the tough love approach, the telling somebody all the ways that they've damaged your life, all the ways they've disappointed you and let you down, and thinking that that uh, might help them to overcome their substance use? It didn't really work very well for me, and that's uh, that's been my experience. You know, I... I don't think anyone really likes right <laughs> hearing those words as you as you laid them out. Uh, you know what was most effective for me in my continued recovery. I know I am starting to sound like a bit of a broken record, but there's reason for that, and that is that just that presence, right? As little judgment or um, bias as possible. Yeah, I, I, in thinking back to my experience, those that came with a hard, you know, hard line and, and that type of approach that you described, they meant well. Again, like I, I think back that they didn't necessarily have, you know, the experience or they weren't overly well equipped, right? To engage and so, so by taking that line, I was less likely to, to be open, to be vulnerable. So I think it was somewhat of a, a defense mechanism for the individual, but no, it didn't, that, that approach didn't have a very positive impact on, on my recovery. It was, it was those that just with as much compassion and patience as possible were there, nothing more um, that were, were most effective for me. Yeah. I don't mind that you're a broken record because I think <laughs> that this message is so important because like you say, people don't react thinking I'm trying to make this person feel bad. They often think this pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of um, threatening approach might work and it might for a minute. It just is probably not going to be sustainable and uh, it could actually cause more harm. So that's why it's important to say the simple answer is just be there, just hold space, just see the human being. Don't, don't focus exclusively on the issue. See that the person behind it. So I'm glad that you're <laughs> hammering that home, <laughs> that it's helpful. Um, yeah. Any other messages or tips or strategies that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we've been able to, to unpack so much in this discussion around, around my experience. And, uh, and I'm very grateful for that, Marianne. So thank you. You know, uh, here I go again. Uh, I just think as, as leaders, as those in, you know, in the professional roles that we find ourselves in, regardless of what that role is for you as a listener, being honest with ourselves, right? What, what is it that you need to improve, but to maintain, right? It's not always necessarily about improvement, to, but, but to maintain positive mental health. And often that answer to that question can be something in your personal life Quite often, it could be something in your professional life. And so I think if we all are just honest and sincere with ourselves in, and, and it takes some work, doesn't it? Like it takes work and time and space to come up with those answers, but being willing to, 
do that work, right? In a, in a promotional preventative type of a way, as we've discussed today. And regardless of whether your position is, you know, an executive within an organization, or an organization, excuse me, or regardless of what that role is, if we don't necessarily know what it is that we need or, or how it is that a certain expectation or process is impacting us positively or negatively, how are we supposed to seek care or support or, or look to improve? So I think answering that question and doing the work to get to the root of that question around what it is that we all need to be mentally, psychologically well. And then I think if all levels across an organization are able to do that work, I think quite organically, it opens up those channels of dialogue. It opens up the opportunities for folks to let their guard down, to perhaps push some of that shame to the side and engage in open and honest conversations. And there's no denying, in my opinion, that that's going to benefit the organization as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. That if all of us have self-awareness, if all of us can have self-compassion, um, which is the opposite of shame, right? Okay, right. you messed up, but you know, you're going to do better and it's all right. Um, you're, you're absolutely right that it's going to benefit each other, the teams and the organization. So Paul, last question for you. If somebody had no idea what psych health and safety in a workplace was, what it looked like, and yes, we have a formal definition, but I don't want you to share that with me. Um, how would you describe it to someone who doesn't know what it means? never thought of it that way before, Marianne. Um, I really think that psychological health and safety in the workplace can be captured as follows. I really think it's about doing all that we can, all that you can as an organization to ensure that your employees are showing up for work each and every day and are being equipped and supported to do the best that they can psychologically, spiritually, otherwise. And knowing that nothing that we as an organization are doing is in fact adding any sense of harm or additional stress to the individuals within our team. Because I think that if, if we're being honest with ourselves, as I, as I just said, in, in addressing those questions, then I think we can begin to look for areas where we can make improvements. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be much folks. It's often just taking stock of what an organization is actually already doing, right? I, I'm thinking about the quote, Marianne, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step by Lao Tzu, right? I just, right? what can we do as an organization to ensure that our employees are feeling supported, doing the best that they can each and every day and knowing that it means something. So I don't know if I answered the question around what psychological health and safety is, it, it, but those are what come to mind for me as you, as you ask. Yeah. Beautifully. So that people can feel it rather than just look at a document and go, Oh, it's doing a, B and C Right. You're helping to 
to make it more clear to more people. So Paul, thank you so much for talking to me today. We're going to have a couple little clips um, on LinkedIn and social media that people will be able to get from the Flourish DX site or from uh, my own LinkedIn. And uh, I really think that uh, you have made a difference today uh, in the lives of the people that will listen to this. And I thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. Thanks so much, Marianne. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure and I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in North America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.